Uh, so if you would turn, please, in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 20 through 39. In our continuing study of the Old Testament, we have progressed from Genesis through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 13th chapter, which will hopefully conclude this evening. And we have gone consecutively, chapter by chapter, through the Bible over the course of uh, nearly four years. And we have been seeing that David is about to reap even further, having already begun to reap what he has sown. A child is dead. A daughter has been raped. Is that the end of what David is going to reap, or is it only the beginning? And the answer to that question depends upon David's response uh, to the judgments that have already been visited upon him. If he'll sow righteousness in response to God's judgments, he will reap life. But if he sows sin further, he will continue to reap destruction. And sadly for David, he fails, both as a father and as a king. And he compounds the problem through the indulgence of his children, he will reap destruction. Though I think that we should say in a careful sort of way that the things that will continue to happen are not inevitable. We're not fatalists. We take God's warning seriously. But if we repent and turn, and if we uh, correctly uh, apply His Word and seek justice and righteousness, uh, then we can turn back His judgments. Uh, But because He doesn't uh, do that, Uh, there will follow then a string of sins that further compound the situation. One son will murder another son. Civil war will break out in the kingdom. Absalom then will be killed. There will be a second civil war in his kingdom. All of this, which I believe he could have averted if he had been swift in carrying out justice, but unfortunately for him, sadly for him, he was incapable of doing so. So let's look first at verses 20 through 22 at the failure of justice. In verse 20 we read, Then Absalom, after finding Tamar and find her distressed and mourning her loss, Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Apparently it was well known about Amnon's uh, affection for Tamar. I guess it was also well known what sort of a character Amnon was, and that this was the kind of thing that he was capable of carrying out. So he knows immediately what's happening. Has Amnon your brother been with you? But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. What he does is a very, very human. He comforts his sister. He takes her under his care. Verse 22, however, Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Uh, He comforts his sister, and at the same time, he quietly conceives vengeance. He nurses his anger. He nurses his hatred. And what, what Absalom is doing, and we'll just touch on it at this point, is he is taking matters into his own hands. What he ought to do is he ought to go to his father and demand justice. He ought to confront his father with the situation. He ought to lay it before his father as before a judge and demand that justice be carried out. Demand that 
the violation of his sister be avenged. Demand that this be recognized as a capital offense and that Amnon pay for the crime with his life as Scripture requires. There are official channels through which justice is administered. We ought to exhaust those alternatives, those channels at every opportunity that we have, depending upon the, the, the right court of jurisdiction given a given case or a given situation. Within the family, it's taken to parents. You don't take vengeance into your own hands against brothers and sisters. You take it to parents. In the church, you take it to the church court. For the church court, that is the session of the church to resolve disputes and conflicts and, and the, that sort of thing. For a judicial decision to be, laid, to be made by the church as is appropriate in ecclesiastical courts when it's an ecclesiastical matter. Civil courts when it's a civil matter. You take it through the appropriate authorities. You don't take vengeance into your own hands. God has given the sword to the state. It is His agent of vengeance. Romans 13 is very clear on that as well as a good portion of the whole Old Testament for that matter. What you're forbidden to do is is to take vengeance into your own hands. To be your own Uh, judge, to be your own jury, to be your own executioner. You have no right to do that. What you must do is take it to the appropriate authorities. Take it to those who are charged with the administration of justice in a given realm, in a given institution, and and demand that they carry out justice. That's what uh, Absalom needs to do at this point. That's not what he does. His sister ends up under his care. He ought to be providing that care, but doing so through the God-appointed channels through which justice is to be administered. It is always wrong when we take it into our own hands. So there's, a, there's an error, a very serious and a grievous error being, taken, uh, being made on the part of Absalom at this point. But the greater error is in verse 21. When King David heard of all these matters... He was very angry. And the problem is, that's where it stops with David. He's furious. He is angry. He's angry about the ruin of his daughter. He's angry about what what probably marks the destruction of the soul of his son Amnon. He's sorry and angry about the disgrace that's being brought to his family. But he does nothing. As King, 2 Samuel 8.15 indicates that he is responsible to administer justice and righteousness for all the people. This he does not do. And so let's look at this failure on David's part from two angles, and then we'll look at the consequences of the failure. First of all, it's a failure as a father. Both the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls add to verse 21 this phrase, he would not hurt Amnon because he was his eldest son and he loved him. Okay, that's not in the Masoretic text. It's not in the text that's behind most of our Bibles. It may or may not uh, be legitimately a part of Scripture. It may be uh, a, a, a tradition that relies, uh, that, that, that reflects a reliable uh, tradition as to the reasoning. It may be just a scribal note that, that indicates some of the motive and reasoning behind the failure of David at this point. It's illuminating. That's, a, that's the least that we would say about it. It's illuminating. He would not hurt Amnon because he was his eldest son and he loved him. What this recalls is several other negligent fathers in the, in the Old Testament. Eli, 2 Samuel 2 and 3. 
indulges the lusts of his sons. He does not take corrective action as they are abusing women, as it were, within the precincts of the temple. Bad enough anywhere else, worse yet, desecrating the the temple. And God asks Eli in 2 Samuel 2.29, why do you honor them more than you honor me? Your failure to correct their conduct is a way of honoring them over me. Uh, then he says again, chapter 3, verse 13, that though his, he had, his sons had made themselves vile, he did not restrain them. That was the failure of Eli, the high priest. You remember who Samuel had served. He did not restrain his own children. Also Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 through 5, he appointed his sons to be judges. Uh, his successors in some sense. We're told in verse 3 of 1 Samuel 8 that he took bribes and perverted justice. And then again in verse 5, he was warned, your sons do not walk in your ways. And Samuel, like Eli, that should have been 1 Samuel 2, not 2 Samuel, by the way. Samuel, like Eli, had a blind spot with respect to his own children. David is blind when it comes to Absalom. He's blind when it comes to Amnon. He will demonstrate that in both of their lives. And it's interesting that this is a failure that is fairly typical among the godly. And I would characterize it in this way. First of all, as tenderness gone awry. Tenderness, tender-heartedness gone awry. David is too soft. And so is Eli. And so was Samuel. Too soft. Too nice. Their child does something, uh, their son, their daughter does something that is wrong. And uh, corrective action is, uh, is needed. And almost immediately, their sympathies move from anger against the child for the, for the mishap, for the sin, for the wrongdoing on their part. It goes almost immediately from there to sympathy for the child. It moves from acknowledging that there's a need to correct the naughty child, as it were, the one who has is, who is sinned, the one who has done wrongly, and from that to the poor child who then is seen as a martyr or a victim whom others are, are, are picking on, as it were. And I think that this, is a, this is a problem. It's something that you see in, in godly folks all the time. Because there is, amongst those who are the people of God, there is a tenderheartedness that often uh, the Lord gives and uh, nurtures and develops within a person. And that tenderheartedness is a necessary component of of child-rearing and of uh, raising godly children and of uh, offering correction within the context of tenderness. But it also has this tendency to go awry and to move too quickly from Acknowledging the need of correction to sympathy for the child as a, as a child who is suffering too much for what, the, what, the, they, what they have uh, in, uh, undergone because of their wrongdoing and then follows the excuses. And so it's not really uh, so-and-so's fault. They, 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 they really didn't mean it. They really didn't attend it. Uh, they were under stress. Uh, they were tired. Uh, there are circumstances, mitigating circumstances, that, that excuse the behavior, excuse the conduct. Uh, they shouldn't be treated so harshly. Uh, they really don't deserve to be treated in that way. And you see, the transition is made. 
from acknowledging that correction needs to take place. There needs to be discipline. Justice needs to be administered. There's been wrongdoing. And the the correction needs to be given. And it needs to be given swiftly. It needs to be given now. Justice requires it, demands it. But then this tenderness, you see, goes awry. And too quickly, the attitude shifts to the poor child. They suffered so much already. And really, this was out of character. This is really not the way they typically are. Uh, They were just too tired. They were just under stress. They just... uh, uh, you know, and the excuses begin to multiply in the follow. And then another transition is made. As the child goes from naughty child to child the martyr, uh, then, then the next transition is uh, that the, the messenger gets blamed. You see, now not only is the, the child a martyr, but the child is actually a victim, you see, a victim of a parent, of, of other parents, and of teachers, and of, uh, of scoutmasters, and of coaches, and others who are picking on the child. Uh, who, uh, the, 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 the child is, is, uh, is, an, is an object of, uh, of uh, unfair treatment on, on the part of, of, of others, and actually uh, siding with the child against other adults, remarkably. And I say, this is, this is a problem that many of the godly have, the people of God have, who want to do right, who want to properly correct them. You'll find them siding with their children against other adults, siding with their children against teachers, siding with their children against coaches and against other authority figures in their life. Now, on the rare occasion, admittedly, there's going to be a, a, a teacher or someone who, who, who does abuse authority and who does step out of line. But I think we need to recognize the 99% over, over against the 1% where that, that might be the case. And the real problem here, and I think we need to recognize that it is a problem, is that we can be, with, when it comes to our own children, the most unobjective people in all of the world. Uh, utterly incapable of hearing any criticism of them utterly incapable of offering any kind of serious correction of them because we are too tender-hearted. That's a nice problem to have. I admit it's better than the other problem of not having any tender-heartedness at all and being all severity and no tenderness. That's a much worse problem. But that's not typically the problem that we have. Some have it. There's a little small percentage out there who just brutally uh, harsh when it comes to disciplining their own family. Now, that's a problem too. But that's not David's problem. That's not Eli's problem. That's not Samuel's problem. That's not the typical problem that I see with people who take Christian discipleship seriously. The typical problem is too indulgent, too soft. David, remember, it said, he would not correct Amnon because he was his eldest son and he loved him. J. Adams uh, uh, says that we really shouldn't be asking people why they do what they do. He offers this in the, church, in the context of church discipline and child uh, discipline as well. You don't need to know why. When you ask why, all you're doing is asking for a bunch of excuses. And they become very proficient at manufacturing excuses for behavior. What you really want to know is what. And if you did it, if you did the thing you were not to do, then why is almost irrelevant. It's not completely irrelevant. You want to know some motives as what, what was behind it. But if you did it, you did it. Doesn't matter if you were tired, doesn't matter if you were under stress, doesn't matter if you had an unusual temptation, doesn't matter if the teacher was mean, 
Doesn't mean if the coach did, doesn't matter if the coach didn't play you. If you said what you shouldn't have said, if you did what you shouldn't have did, you need to be corrected. And there shouldn't be any excuses that are allowed. The why question is virtually irrelevant. What did you do? And if you did it, you need to be corrected. And I would urge parents in that respect, do not side with your children against other adults. Um, you know, in the old communities uh, of Amer- in America of uh, just several decades ago, uh, our older members can tell you about every adult in their whole community offering correction. Any kid got out of line, any kid throwing rocks at windows, any adult offered correction. Took the kid by the collar, yanked him home, or even paddled him on the way. Now, maybe we never need, we don't need to go back to that. We never will go back to that. But I just offer that as a picture of a different mentality. And uh, surely Hillary's gotten out of court when she talks about it takes a village, but there is a point of truth in all of that. And that is, it takes a community. We need to be looking out for one another's kids. And if I see your kid doing something wrong, I don't need an uh, angry mother hen coming at me telling me that I shouldn't have offered the correction. And neither do you. And we need to be looking out for one another's kids in that respect and offering correction and making correction. And other adults need to receive that. And, uh, and not be making excuses. And not be turning it against the adult that's doing that. We've had Sunday school teachers at times chewed out because they corrected somebody's child. That's ridiculous. That, is, that shows a tendency or an inability to be objective about your own children. Sunday school teachers are not going to make up uh, 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 violations from your children. They're not going to do that. If, if, if that's the way that I'm viewing reality, if I'm saying my Johnny would never do thus and so, I've got a problem. For one thing, I wonder about your theology. I mean, how is it that we can be good Calvinists and not think our children do things wrong? How can we even be awake or alive as parents and not know that our children are doing things wrong all the time, that their hearts, like our hearts, are deceitful above all else and desperately wicked? And that foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. And see, this is, this, and this is my point. David is too soft. David won't offer correction. David won't do, do it in Amnon's case. He's not going to do it in Absalom's case either. He's going to toy with it. He's not going to follow through on it. He's not going to take it seriously. And why won't he? Because he's too soft. Sympathy goes out to the child too easily. That's his firstborn, Amnon is. Heir to the throne. His sympathies go out to him. He makes excuses for him. He draws back from doing what is right and what is just. Something to be aware of. In the case of uh, every one of us, I think the better mentality is to presume guilt. I heard a story about uh, a a friend of mine who was working with youth, and he uh, had a problem with uh, one of the kids in the youth group that was lying all the time. And so very reluctantly and nervously, he went to uh, the parent of this child actually had lunch with the parent and sat down and said, look, I've got to broach this subject with you. And, you know, in today's climate, I mean, he was just falling all over himself to apologize and say, look, I've been lied to one, two, three, four, five times. And uh, what, what would you like me to do? And this parent, seeing how nervous the youth worker was, said, uh, listen, let me tell you something about my child. 
He lies a lot. And that set him all at ease. What an, and he was amazed at how unusual the response was. The parent not only knew that the child had a problem, but that it was a big problem. And decided with the youth worker over against his own child in making that correction. That, that, that reveals objectivity and a sense of justice and an ability to see accurately one's own children. That is a gift, believe me, it is not common. The common thing is to not be objective with your own children, to be soft, to be overly tender-hearted, to turn them into martyrs and victims and side with them against the rest of the world. And when that's the last thing that they, they, they need, there's a, an almost a Pelagian, sentimentalized, romanticized view of children. So David failures, fails as a father because he, his tenderness has gone awry. But secondly, he fails because, probably because of leniency. He's overly lenient in areas of his own indulgence. How can he punish Amnon for a sin of the bedroom, so to speak, when he sinned with Bathsheba? I mean, how hard can he be on him? He's guilty of the same thing in another way. How can he follow up and punish Absalom for the murder of Amnon when David conspired to kill Uriah? You see the problem, and he draws back. Probably, in some degree, because he's having to offer correction in an area of his own failure. And he just doesn't have the stomach to do it. He sees the hypocrisy of it. And we all tend to indulge in our children that with which we ourselves struggled or indulged. If you have struggled with sin XXX, you will tend to be lenient and tolerant of the same sin in your children. If you have a problem with laziness, you're going to tolerate laziness in your children. You have a bad temper, you're probably going to tolerate that in your children. Materialism, sins of the tongue, lust, judgmentalism, you're going to pass these on and you're going to indulge them when they emerge in your own children. Theft, self-control, impatience, lying. And then you'll, you'll breeze right past all of the scriptural warnings. You'll water them down or ignore them. If your problem is that you're lazy, you're going to read about the ant and go to the sluggard. Oh, sluggard, go to the ant and learn and so forth. You'll read right past it. You got a, a problem with uh, lying, you'll lead the condemnations of lying and you'll, you'll glide right past it. And uh, you'll say about your children, oh, he's just like me. Oh, she's just like I am. Has the same problems that, that, that I do. And you'll tend to see these things as cute and oh, look at the little temper that little Johnny or little Susie has. You're not going to view it biblically. You're going to say, oh, that's the same thing I struggle with, my little temper. Isn't it cute when he blows up? Isn't it cute uh, when, when he says those things? And we will tend to indulge in our children all along from infancy right along into adulthood the very things that were characteristic of our own lives, the things that we indulge in ourselves, we will tend to indulge in them. Even if we don't want to, we won't have the stomach to offer discipline because of our own failures in those areas. We will draw back from it. So, number one, it's a failure as a father. A failure as a father in that he's 
His tenderness has gone awry, and he's lenient in the areas of his own indulgence. Secondly, it's failure as a king. Again, 2 Samuel 8.15 requires that he administer justice and righteousness for all people. Rape is a capital offense. Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 through 27. There ought to be a trial, and there ought to be an execution. You say, well, this is his own son. How could he do that? Well, if he can't do it, then he ought to step down. Or he ought to turn justice over to somebody who's capable of, uh, of carrying it out. He ought to uh, withdraw himself from the case and put someone else on it, some other judge in charge of administering it, some lesser official who will have the nerve to, call, to follow through and make sure that justice is done. Now, because he fails as a father and because he fails as a king, the result is going to be the disaster of verses 23 through 39. He will not carry out justice, and so Absalom takes personal vengeance into his own hands. He encourages, the failure of justice encourages vigilantism, as is always the case. And you're going to see that in this country. The more people fail, or rather the more that the courts fail to administer justice, the more people sense that justice is not being done, that criminals are getting away with it, that murderers and violent offenders are out on the streets, that they get slapped on the wrist, and then they're out and they're back and they're doing the same things again, the more you see that, the more vigilantism you're going to see in this country. People will say, I don't trust the courts. The courts aren't going to do anything. He's going to get away with it. He's not going to pay for it. And they're going to get a gun. They're going to get whatever it takes. And they're going to see that justice is done. And it will become, it, there will be an escalation of violence an escalation of brutality, and an escalation of injustice. Because vigilantism gets it wrong quite frequently. Uh, Vigilantism doesn't have the subtlety, does it, of a jury and a judge. It doesn't weigh the evidence. We presume guilt. We take it into our own hands. We we then... uh, take uh, the the functions of uh, judge and jury and executioner into our own hands and we fulfill them all and violence escalates. And the reason it escalates is because justice is not done in the beginning. This is where, again, uh, there, there are those who can be more compassionate than thou in the short run than we are. We are perceived, if we insist on justice, we are perceived as being hard-hearted and not having compassion. But these things need to be looked at from a long-term point of view. The failure of justice in the initial stages leads to an escalation of bloodshed and violence and heartbreak in the long run. The more compassionate thing to do is to insist upon justice up front and to carry through on it swiftly and precisely. That's the way you deter violence. We read in Ecclesiastes 8.11. Ecclesiastes 8.11 warns, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Ecclesiastes 8.11 If justice is not accurate, if it isn't swift, then it just encourages more wrongdoing and more more violence. Take Take the example of your children. You don't correct your children, the world will. 
They will be taught in the school of hard knocks. You indulge their temper and their selfishness and their lack of self-control. You think all those things are cute and so forth. Well, then their peers and their teachers will knock it out of them. And they'll have a much more difficult time in the long run because of it because their, their peers won't think they're cute. They'll think they're selfish and intolerable. And they'll, one way or another, knock all the rough edges off of your kids and they'll get hurt in the process, but it'll all be your fault because you indulged them, taught them it was cute, and didn't correct it. In a national situation, the problem is justice isn't done. And when justice isn't done, people have a way of taking it in their own hands and making sure it isn't done. The other thing that happens is that people begin to get a sense that punishment can be avoided. I mean, Amnon got away with it. So why not the next guy? And if Amnon got away with it, then Absalom can, can, can uh, conclude rightly, I'll get away with it. There's no punishment of one of the king's son when he rapes. There'll be no punishment for the other of the king's sons when he commits murder. And so the failure of justice results in personal vengeance. Verses 23 through 29, Absalom plans the avenging of the death of Tamar. He nurses his hatred for two years, we're told in verse 23. The occasion for the expressing of that hatred is a sheep-shearing festivity that apparently was common in Israel of, those, of, of that time. Verses 24 through 27, he gets David's consent to hold a, a party, as it were, a celebration. Like David in verse 28, he uses alcohol. We read there, See now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and just like David used alcohol with Uriah, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death, do not fear. Have not I myself commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. And now it was while they were on the way, the report came to David saying, Absalom has struck down all the king's son and not one of them is left. And of course, that report was inaccurate. Then the king arose, tore his clothes, lay on the ground, and all his servants were standing by with clothes torn. And, and, and Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, responded, Do not let my lord suppose they have put to death all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead, because by the intent of Absalom... This has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, do not let my lord the king take the report to heart. Namely, all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Verse 34, now Absalom had fled, and the young man who was watchman raised his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come according to your servant's word. So it happened. And it came about as soon as he had finished speaking that, Behold, the king's sons came and lifted their voices and wept. And also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. What a, what a tragedy. Imagine this within the context of one's own family one's own flesh and blood. What a disaster. First a rape, now a murder. 
in the presence of all of the other brothers. What a tragedy, what heartbreak. And this is just the beginning of it. Verse 37. Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amenud, Amehud, I guess, the king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. His son Amnon, that is. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. And the heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. And those are ominous words because what they mean, and there's a lot of dispute over exactly the nuance of what's being said there about David, what it means is, here we go again. His heart goes out. I'll tell you what ought to go out. The armies of Israel ought to go out and grab him and seize him and conduct a trial and put him to death. He murdered That's not what's going to happen. We start all over again. And war will break out in Israel. And the bloodshed, the violence will multiply again and again and again and again throughout the nation. And all this because David sins with Bathsheba. And all this because David will not administer justice as God requires him to as a father and as a king, even if it means his own children are caught in the wheels of justice. That's as it must be. Now, what this means for us, finally, is that we must prefer truth and justice and righteousness over everything even over our own flesh and blood. We must be zealous for truth, zealous for righteousness. Demand that justice be done. Even though that's in some ways contrary to our instincts and our hearts go out to our loved ones, in the long run, it just means even greater heartbreak, heartache, violence and destruction for them and for all those who are around them as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, oh, Lord, we pray that we might be diligent as parents and as grandparents in the instruction and training of our children And as a church and the administration of justice and as a society, oh Lord, we pray that we might see justice restored in our nation as well. Oh Lord, we pray that there might be an awakening in our midst and in our nation to the requirements of justice. So strict is God's justice, we remember that Jesus went to the cross to pay the debt for our sin. And, O Lord, we rest in that and we trust in that. And we pray as well that we might love justice even as he did. And we pray for our children, our Father, that they would not be indulged but corrected with love and yet firmly 
even as David failed to do. We pray, our Father, for the meal that we will enjoy together. We pray that you will nourish our bodies with it. And we pray, our Father, also for your benediction to rest upon us all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.